or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 teaches us that there is a moral order in God's universe. The moral order in God's universe is not independent from God, but is an outworking of God's character. In its simplest form, it goes like this. The righteous will prosper, and the wicked will suffer. That's the message of Psalm 1 that we studied last week. And again, I say that the the moral order does not exist independently of God. That's a key point. It doesn't exist independently of God. It flows forth from God. And that will help us to understand what's going on in Psalm 37. The moral order flows from God's perfect character, which guarantees its function. If it flows from God, the function of the moral order is guaranteed. So before we get into the exceptions in Psalm 37, we need to establish the principle in Psalm 1 that there is a moral order. The righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. That's God's moral order. The moral order flows from His character. God is sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He's loving. He's fair. And He always acts consistently with who He is. Always. Now, this is so critical. Let me say it again. The moral order doesn't exist independently of God. It flows from Him. This idea that the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will suffer is not some sort of ethereal principle that's out there that existed eternally apart from God. That's not true. The moral order flows from God. And because it flows from God, because God is infinite and He's perfect, then the moral order is guaranteed. It's critical we understand that in Psalm 1 because when we get to Psalm 37, it's going to look like it might not be. Because the moral order flows from God's character, it follows that He can only bless obedience. He can only bless righteousness. That's the only thing He can do is bless it. And the only thing He can do to disobedience is curse it. Disobedience and rebellion will never be blessed by God. Now, that may be, it may appear to be blessed, but it's not coming from God's character. He can't do it. You see the connection between the two. It can't be done. Some people ask about the question of good and evil. What is evil? Well, evil is not something that exists independently all by itself. And there were some of the ancient philosophers that thought that. They thought that good, there was a good that was eternal. There was also an evil that's eternal. And those two have been at constant odds with each other for all of eternity. That's not Christianity. That's more of a Platonic kind of philosophy. The Christian philosophy, the biblical philosophy, is that everything that flowed forth from God in, Genesis, in the Genesis creation account was good. It was tov. Then when we got to the creation of humanity, it was tov me'od. It was extremely good. Mankind perverted that good and created evil. God's not the creator of evil. God is the creator of a moral system whereby good is blessed 
And evil is cursed because it comes from his character and it's guaranteed by his character. Now, if you get that, we almost don't need to study Psalm 37. Because if you've got that, you've got Psalm 37. Evil is simply a distortion of good. Now, one more note before I leave that topic. We don't worship the moral system. Now, this is a fine line. We don't worship that moral system. We worship the God from which that moral system flows. Fine point, but it is an important point. Now, in Psalm 37, we can, we can easily see that there are times when it would appear to a reasonable and rational person that this moral order that I've been speaking about, that Psalm 1 spoke about, that we studied last week, that this moral order where the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be cursed, there are times when a reasonable person may observe that that moral order seems to have been violated or perhaps even interrupted or maybe doesn't even exist at all. We look out and we see times where the wicked appear to prosper. We see it all over the place. We talked about it a little bit last week. Paris Hilton, what has she contributed to society, but she's worth $45 million. You know, the, the Colombian drug lord that was worth $9 billion. And if you wait a minute, how can that be in light of Psalm 1, and not just Psalm 1, but the rest of the biblical teaching, in light of the fact that there is this moral order and there is this God up there who's watching everything that we do, and the fact that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer, how can you explain that? Most of us would like to say, give me 10% of that. Just 10%, I'd be perfectly happy. You know, you might not. But how can we explain that? Even to people who love God, even to people who are immersed in His Word on a regular basis, we can still look out at the world and we can see, apparently, at least what we observe, the righteous not doing so well and the wicked seeming to be prosperous as they can possibly be. So we would say, wait a minute. Maybe it's just an illusion, or maybe that's not the case at all. But if some people, some reasonable people, weren't at least observing that, there'd be no reason for David to write Psalm 37. We got to this point by studying David's interaction with Nabal and Abigail. And remember, Nabal was a fellow who was just a rotten, evil, mean guy. Nothing righteous about him at all. And Nabal had 3,000 sheep and 1,500 goats, something like that, which made him a multimillionaire at that time. And we saw that he owed David a favor or two. David had protected him and his flocks. And when it came time to repay the favor just with some food, Nabal says, that's a deal. I'm not paying you back anything. And so David wants to go wipe Nabal out. Abigail stops him. Nabal falls over with a heart attack when he finds out how close he came to dying. And David married Abigail. Everybody lived happily ever after. Kind of. At some point later in his life, David sits down and writes Psalm 37 because it would look to normal people like, wait a minute, why is Nabal so prosperous? Of the two people, well, the three people, but the, the two men in that narrative, you would think that if anybody was going looking for food, it wouldn't be David and his men. I mean, after all, David's the guy that's the battle of the Lord. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? This is David, after all. And in that context, pre-Psalm 37, David was on the run for his life, and he's looking for food, and he's the righteous one. And we, again, 
remember in the Psalms, righteous and wicked are synonyms for saved and unsaved. The psalmist assumes that the righteous will act righteous and the wicked will act wickedly. But you would think that David, the righteous one, would be the one that would be extremely wealthy. And they ball this rotten guy. Wouldn't have anywhere to lay his head, but it wasn't that way. Reasonable people can look out on the world and they can watch the wicked seemingly prosper and they can be perplexed. Sometimes they can be annoyed. Sometimes they can be irritated. They can be vexed, to use a, an older English word in some of your translations. So you see, we have the principle in Psalm 1. This is the way God designed it to be. But we also see some apparent distortions of that system. Psalm 37 is written, Psalm 73 as well, but we're not going to study that one. But Psalm 37 is written to help us to clear our minds and to see why God would allow this and what is really going on with these folks. One of the keys is going to be, was Nabal really that prosperous? And just because you have 3,000 sheep and 1,500 goats, is that really what brings you contentment? Because back in the Psalm 1, the very first verse says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That word blessed is esher, a Hebrew word, which can be translated as one of those very rich Hebrew words that can be translated a lot of different ways. And sometimes you have to translate it with a whole bunch of English words in order to get the flavor. But blessed is legitimate, kind of like Jesus' beatitude. That particular Greek term there has a blessed of meaning. But blessed is certainly a possibility. Some people like to translate it happy. But I think the best understanding of Esther in this context is, con- is contented. How contented is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, sit in the seat of scoffers, or stand in the path of sinners? So there is a reason to write Psalm 37. So if you're one of those reasonable people that looks out at the world and you say, wait a minute, I'm not advocating pity parties. But I'm saying a reasonable person could look out at the world and say, hold on just a second. I'm working my tail off here. I work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. I'm an honest person. I don't cheat on my time card. I do everything I can to pay my bills. I'm in church every time the doors open. I love the Lord. I serve Him in every way I can. And I'm having trouble making my car payment. And my co-worker, who cheats on his time card, who cheats on his taxes, who cheats on his wife, seems like he has no pains in life at all. I'm having trouble on my car payment. He's driving a Corvette or a Mercedes or whatever it may be. Lord, what's wrong here? I'm trying to do the right thing. He's doing everything wrong. It looks like I'm having the biggest, hardest time in life, and he seems like he's got a life with no pain. Now, part of the problem, we saw it last week, and it's going to carry over into this week, was we're making some really wrong assumptions. I know people who are enormously wealthy that are believers and that are extremely happy and content. I know people who are enormously wealthy that are not believers or they're believers walking out of fellowship with God and they are the most unhappy people I know. But I also know people who are believers and have basically nothing who are perfectly content. And I know people who are believers that have basically nothing and they're not contented at all. My point is, is that we've got to expel from our thinking this idea that a million dollars in the bank equals my contentment. If that's what you're thinking, I can promise you, if you get a million or 150 million, you will not be content. 
because you're counting on that for your contentment. Who, that's the key, who should we be counting on for our contentment? It's not what should we be counting on for our contentment, it's who should we be counting on. We've heard of a million times as we've been growing up, you've heard of it a million times here too, hyperbolically, that if we want contentment in life, our focus needs to be on the Lord. That's going to be what the message of Psalm 37 is going to be. Psalm 37 is a statement of faith acknowledging that there is evidence that does seem to clash with the moral law. But if we, or the moral order, not the moral law, the moral order. But if we want contentment in life, our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ, not the money that we have in the bank and watch, not the money someone else has in the bank. When you start focusing on what somebody else has, what, what, what kind of car somebody else has, what kind of house somebody else lives in, you're already messing up. Don't have a pity party, but if you've observed things like that and you're scratching your head, you're no different from David after his encounter with Nabal. So you're in good company, but don't have a pity party about it. Come up to the same conclusions that David did after he observed what appeared to be the moral order being interrupted or reversed. Clearly, the appropriate response to the apparent suspension of the moral order or the lack of existence, apparent lack of existence of the moral order is not to become vexed, to use that old English word, is not to fret, it's not to become irritated, it's not to become discouraged, it's not to become hacked off, and it's not to become bitter or enraged or doubting of God's existence. Lord, I'm doing everything right, and you're not making me rich. Think about what you're saying, and who you're saying it to, and what kind of challenge you're making to God's very character. You're challenging the fact that He really loves you. Really, when it's all said and done, that's what you're challenging. God, you don't really love me. You just tell me that you love me. Like a spoiled child with a parent who passes by the ice cream store. I guess today it's the yogurt store. Have you seen these things are going up everywhere? I'm kind of glad. They put one right by the house. I hope it's the low-fat stuff. But the kid that passes by the yogurt store and Mama says, no, you can't have that. Not today. Well, Mama, you don't love me. You must hate me. If we were sitting in the car, we would be kind, so we probably wouldn't say it out loud, but if we were sitting in the car with a little child and his mom who passed by the yogurt store, and the, and the mom said, listen, I can't give you that yogurt today. You've already had enough. It's not good for you. It's going to spoil your dinner or whatever. And you heard the child say, well, you don't love me. This is proof. You don't love me. If we were sitting in the back seat, we would think, what a little jerk kid. Now, we wouldn't say it out loud because we would love the people, but that's what we'd be thinking. What an ungrateful little jerk child. But we're doing the same thing when we see the wealth and the prosperity of somebody else and we say, well, you, don't, you must not love me. Now, we would never say those words because we're too sophisticated. But really, that's what our actions are betraying, that thought. And listen, you don't have to look down like a lot of you are doing right now. I know all of us have been in this situation. I'll be the first one to tell you. All of us have been here. And I would encourage all of us, let's get our eyes off of other people that we think are prospering and we're not. No matter what the area of prosperity is. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's abundance of children. I don't know what it may be, but we need to get our eyes off the prosperity of the wicked and onto 
the creator of that moral order in the first place. And I'm going to tell you, if we do that, everything's going to be fine. God has the ability, because he's omnipotent, to carry out his moral order. Now, back, I think it was in the 70s, there was a book that came out that a lot of Christians read. A lot of Christians thought it was a Christian book. It was called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. That was a bestseller. I mean, it still is on Amazon, still sells quite a bit. And that was Rabbi Kushner's best effort to answer the question, why do the wicked prosper? And you know what his answer was? His answer was that, yes, God is good, and yes, God is loving, and yes, God is kind, but no, God is not omnipotent. That was his conclusion. And I have certain sympathies for Rabbi Kushner. He lost a, a child, I think, in her, his, I think it was her teens. And he was upset over this, and he completely changed his theology. A good Jewish rabbi ought to know that God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But Rabbi Kushner's conclusion was, yes, God would like to have a moral order. He'd like to have this principle that's, that's taught in Psalm 1, theoretically. But practically, he can't bring it about because he's not omnipotent. That was Rabbi Kushner's best attempt that he could make in order to make sense out of this. There is a better way. God is omnipotent. And that's why I stressed a minute ago that this moral order flows from his character. And part of his character is, his, part of his infinite perfection is his omnipotence. So yes, it's not just a theory with God. He has the ability to carry the theory out. Now that's a principle, that's a truth principle from the Word of God. When we act like he doesn't, we're no better than Rabbi Kushner. Sometimes we do that in a practical way. Yes, well, God, you may love me, but it doesn't seem like you're doing anything about it. That's, that's, there's one of two conclusions you can come to if that's the pity part of your heaven. Either God doesn't really love you, or like Kushner, he loves you, but can't do anything about it. Neither one of those ideas is the case. The moral order flows from his character, therefore it is guaranteed. Now, in the first six verses of chapter 37, moving there now, there are some key terms. Don't be vexed. On the other hand, trust, delight, and commit. A couple of my favorite verses in all of the Word of God are in the first part of Psalm 37. Those will be the ones that we study tonight. The remedy for negative feelings that come from observing an apparent break in the moral order is to focus upon Yahweh and let appropriate feelings arise. That's the message of Psalm 37 in a nutshell. One more time. The remedy for negative feelings that come from observing an apparent break in the moral order is to focus upon Yahweh and let appropriate feelings arise. This is David's message to us. After having gone through the situation with Nabal and probably some others as well, he very likely, we'll see this next week, very likely is a little later in life when he writes this. So he's had time to digest it, time to observe this happening, probably more than this one. And this is his answer. You want the answer to these negative feelings, this, this feeling of being vexed or fretting or jealous or mad or angry or perplexed or annoyed or tormented? You want the answer to that? The answer is to turn your focus away from either the wicked or their apparent prosperity and on to the Lord. It takes a lot of trust to do this. Let's be frank with each other about something. Let's be frank with ourselves. Don't look around. Just be frank with yourself. 
love God because he's your sugar daddy? Do you love God for what he can do for you? Because you think he's going to give you a new car or a new house? Now, I'm not talking about eternal life. That's a totally different thing. But is the reason you really love God because you think he's going to bless you materially? There are a lot of people around the world that that's the case for them. They have a whole philosophy about it. And so, therefore, when they're not blessed materially, then they turn on God. Now, this is a question, an honest question that we have to ask and answer each individual one in our own soul. Really, what is our reason for loving God? Is it because we think he's going to do something for us? And if it is, we just have to be honest about it. If it is, then confess it in your own soul. But if that's the reason that we love God, then we're treating him as a sugar daddy. That's not a very nice thing. The remedy for negative feelings that come from observing an apparent break in the moral order is to focus upon Yahweh and let appropriate feelings arise. Verse 1 of Psalm 37 reads this way, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Verse 2, For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. We don't have a hard time understanding this illustration here, do we? Our, Our grass is pretty much dead all over town. So we can see how grass can be really beautiful one day, but it doesn't tend to stay that way. Even if we have plenty of rain in the wintertime, somebody's yard turns brown, at least around this part of the country. So we can understand this illustration. They certainly could have understood it in Israel, in the climate that they had. David's saying this, don't fret because of evildoers. Now this word fret is probably just as anachronistic in some ways as the word vex, be not vexed. But it means don't be angry, don't be irritated, don't be packed off, don't be jealous. That's not the appropriate response. That's the, in, that's the inappropriate response. When we see the apparent prosperity of the wicked, and if I get irritated with it, the appropriate response for me better be first to confess it, because it's a sin, and secondly, as quickly as I can, to turn my attention away from that and onto the Lord himself. David's like a lot of good authors. If you speak to journalists, they have this phrase, and they, they say something like this, don't bury the lead. If you're in the editorial room in a large newspaper, they have a policy that's called don't bury the lead. The lead is the main point of the story. And if you have a newspaper article that's being written, newspaper editors know that most people aren't going to read past the first couple paragraphs. So you better get the lead in in those first couple paragraphs. Don't build up to it too long because they'll never get to the lead. If you submit an article to an editor, an editor may say, well, you buried the lead. Rewrite this. Give me the lead right up front. And that's what David's doing here. He's really giving us the lead in the first two verses. This summarizes the whole psalm. Don't get upset. Why should we not get upset? Well, one of the reasons we ought not to is because they'll wither quickly like the grass, because their prosperity is not permanent. That's why I've been calling it apparent prosperity of the wicked. Everybody thinks that these wealthy people or these people are exceptionally beautiful or whatever it may be that you would consider prosperity, everybody thinks that that's something that's going to go on forever and they have no pains in their life. They have great pains. And it's not going to last. But you know something is going to last? You know something that cannot be taken away from you? Ever? 
And that's the most important thing that you have, and that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. That can't be taken away from you. You have eternal life. It was given to you at the moment you trusted Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. What would you trade for your eternal life? Would you trade $150 million? Would you take $150 million for your eternal life? Of course you wouldn't. $150 billion, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't trade it for any amount of money or any amount of prosperity or all the houses and all the nice places in the world. You wouldn't trade it. That tells me that that eternal life that you possess, which, which encompasses also your relationship with God, fundamentally is more important to you than any material prosperity that may come, to your, come your way subsequently. There's nothing wrong with material prosperity, provided God gave it to you and, you and you didn't come to it by inappropriate or dishonest means. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't guarantee happiness. Actually, it's a great burden for a lot of people because they know that to whom as much has been given, to much is expected. They know that they have a responsibility to be good stewards of that. We all do. So there's a lot of pressure on really wealthy people sometimes to make sure that they're doing what they should do with it because they realize they'll be judged for that at the judgment seat of Christ. So right from the get-go, David makes sure he doesn't bury the lead. The lead is right here. Don't fret. Don't be irritated, anxious, angry, or jealous of wrongdoers because they will wither quickly like the grass and they'll fade like the green herb. On the other hand, in verses 3 and 4, trust in the Lord. And do good. It's okay to do good. It's okay to do the right thing. Remember, moral order. Righteous are going to be blessed. The wicked are going to suffer. It's okay to be a righteous person. That's what David's saying here. You're not going to lose by being righteous. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. I'll show you more about this next time. But this idea of dwelling in the land is going to come up several times in this passage. The reason it comes up so much is because... In the context in which David is writing to a Jewish audience in a Jewish context, dwelling in the land is a symbol of prosperity. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Trust. Take delight. Do good. Dwell in the land. Feed on faithfulness and truthfulness. These are the main concepts here. As opposed to getting our focus on the prosperity of what the psalmist would call the wicked, or people that we just don't think are as deserving as we are. As opposed to getting our focus on there, David says, no, listen, trust in the Lord. What does he mean by that? He means that we need to come to the conclusion someday as believers, maybe it takes some amount of spiritual growth, but we've got to come to the conclusion that the Lord has our best interest in mind. That he really does love us. That it's not some sort of game. That he's not some sort of sadistic cosmic puppeteer just trying to make life miserable for us. He really does love us. Do you believe that, the psalmist is saying? Do you really believe it? He's demonstrated in one way that we all believe it. Because we've trusted him for the biggest thing in life, and that's our salvation. We put our eternal destiny in his hands and we trust Him for that big thing, why wouldn't we trust Him for everything else? Why would we think He has our best interest in mind in terms of securing our eternal life, but then after that, He's just going to mess with us. He's going to forget us. He's going to give prosperity to everybody else, and He's going to ignore your righteousness or your obedience. Absolutely not. 
Trust in the Lord. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Be righteous. Let righteousness flow from your positional righteousness. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And then, one of my favorite verses in all the Word of God, delight thyself or delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, what does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? And the context of the psalm, delighting oneself in the Lord, means first, and we see this in Psalm 1, to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Think back, some would be way back, and some maybe not so far. But think back to when you first met your person that your spouse was. And probably, for most everybody, back then it was letters that were written and not emails. But, you know, you used to get letters, nice little cards. And, you know, you would get a card in the mail. And it would maybe not just have the writing, the hallmarks would have put in there. And you read that. But what was the first thing you read? You want to go down and read what the person had written. And especially if it was a more than just a couple of words, you, you read it, and you read it over and over again, and you just you put it on your desk, you come back, you read it later. What was one thing that, that you looked for? Did they sign it love, or did they sign it regards, or sincerely? You know? Or did you get the I love you, and then they signed their name? But you focused on every, you parsed every single syllable. God has written a love letter to us. That's the Word of God. He's revealed Himself to us. And we should immerse ourselves in it with the same intensity that we used to immerse ourselves in the correspondence from the one that we loved from a human perspective. Think about it. If we really do love Him, we should pour over this. That's the first thing that is meant in the Psalms by delighting oneself in the Lord. If you delight yourself in Him, you're going to want to know more about Him. Because the more we learn about him, the more we're going to love him. The second thing that delighting oneself in the Lord means in the context of the psalm is that based upon that information that we have, that we learn about him, our love for him will continue to grow and it will grow exponentially. That's what delighting oneself in the Lord really means in the context of the psalm. First, we immerse ourselves in the Word. We know we just can't wait to learn everything we can about Him. And the more we learn about Him, the more we love Him. And then there's a positive cycle. It's not a vicious cycle. It's a positive upward cycle. The more we know about Him, the more we love Him. The more we love Him, the more we want to know about Him. The more we know about Him, the more we want to learn more about Him and love Him some more. And it just it's, it's a positive upward spiral. That's what it means to delight oneself in the Lord. Now look at it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If we look at God as a sugar daddy that's just going to give us what we want when we ask for it, Lord, give me, give me, give me, if that's the way we're looking at him, that's not the God of the Bible. You don't have a love relationship with the Lord. It's something, but it's not a love relationship. But if I truly, deeply, honestly, intensely love my Lord, then guess what? It's not going to bother me a bit if somebody else over here has $150 million because I've got him. C.S. Lewis said one time that he who has the Lord and everything else has no more than he who has the Lord alone. I know percentage-wise, there's at least two or three people here that are thinking, that's a cop-out. Wait a minute. That's a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. It's the Word of God. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you really love it? 
Because if you really love him, you really trust him. You have your best interest in mind. And if he decides to pass by the yogurt store and not get you any of that thing, you're not going to do the foolish, childish thing of turning to him and saying, you don't love me. All of us, at some point in our spiritual growth, have done something like that. Maybe not as blatant, but we've all done something like that. We all need to correct it. So we will love him more every day as a result. When we do that, everything else becomes secondary. Everything else. It doesn't mean that everything else becomes insignificant. What I mean by that is this. If you want to have a really God-honoring marriage, you need to love the Lord above everything else or everyone else. And that includes the spouse that you love so dearly. And this is not taking one single thing away from your spouse. Not one single thing. But it's getting the priority right. If I love the Lord more than anything else, if he is my priority in life, if I'm immersing myself in his word and I'm really immersing myself and I'm not just reading, reading it over like I would the words of the Hallmark card to get to the other stuff somewhere, but if I'm really immersing myself in everything that he's done, I'm going to love him deeply. It doesn't mean my wife is any less significant. In fact, she's going to become more significant. But if I'm loving him deeply and he's my priority, and she's never done this, but if she was to disappoint me at any one given time, it's not going to be devastating. It may be annoying, but it's not going to be devastating. Well, she's never done it, so I don't know what... But it wouldn't be devastating. I'm not going to run off and get a divorce for some of the simplest and serious things that Christians get divorced for. If my focus is really upon the Lord, Francis Schaeffer wrote in a book called True Spirituality, there are many Christian marriages that break up because somebody wakes up one day and realizes their spouse is not perfect. And they just blow it up. Well, guess what, sport? You're not perfect either. There's only one perfect person in this relationship, and it's not either one of you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So if my focus is on Christ, then my marriage is going to be better. It doesn't mean my spouse is insignificant to me. It doesn't mean my children are insignificant to me or my grandson's insignificant to me. Oh, they're all significant. But if they're placed in the proper order, then it's all going to work out. That's what David's saying here. Delight yourself in the Lord. Learn about him and love him, and he's going to give you the desires of your heart. You know what's changed? It's the desire of your heart. Because the desire of my heart is just to be with him. Just have this relationship with him. It'll be so long to be with him in eternity. If I really love him, now I'm not going to hasten the process by jumping off a bridge somewhere. Because that wouldn't be loving him either, would it? No, because I have to love him enough to trust him to take me home at the right time. That's what this verse means. It's a powerful verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. Delight yourself also in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Because he's given you himself. That's the desire of your heart. And once again, I'm not in any way denigrating any other legitimate love you may have. For your spouse, or for your friends, for your children. Not in any way. To say I love God more than I love my wife is a compliment to her. She wouldn't want it any other way. Nor would I. 
But she says, my focus in life is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the help me. That's better for me. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, our request will be in line with His will. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, we'll trust God to have our best interests in mind, and we'll recognize that God is faithful. Verses 5 and 6, and this is as far as we get from 9. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He'll do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as noonday. Verse 3 said, trust in the Lord. It comes up again. Verse 5, trust also in Him. That does seem to be foremost in David's mind. That we trust Him. Now here we're not trusting Him for eternal life. That's already been done in this song. We're trusting Him to have our best interests in mind and to be able to carry out His will. A God who was loving and kind and good but not omnipotent does us really very little good. But the God of the Bible is also omnipotent, so He's able to carry out His plan. So in verses 5 and 6, again the point is trust. How much do you trust? Really? How much do you trust? You trust him through the difficult times when you see the wicked apparently prosper, or does that bother you so much? Are you so vexed by that? Are you so fretting over it, anxious, irritated, hacked off by it that you get your attention off of God and onto the wicked or their prosperity? How much do you really trust him? Really? Now these are questions all of us need to go home and answer. Is our trust based upon what he can do for us maturely? Am I obeying Him on the surface because I want to say I love Him, but deep down because I think not only is He going to help me make that car payment, but next year I might be a better one if I'm a good boy. Do I love my mother because even though I'm a little irritated with her right now for passing by the yoga store, am I going to be nicer because I think next time we pass by the yoga store she's going to be nice to me? Or what happens if next time you pass by the yoga store and that happens? Then are you going to get upset with it? Or the fifth or the tenth or the twentieth time? The point being, if she passes by twenty times, and you know your mama really loves you, and she does, like your mama do, then you know she's got your best interest in mind. If she's a normal mom, they love their kids. Listen, I'm talking about contentment here. I'm going back to Psalm 1. This is what Psalm 1 is talking about. This is the moral order. Do you want contentment? Well, there's a way to have it. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way into Him. Although these verses are not in parallel in the Hebrew text, there is still that, that idea of a parallel concept between delighting yourself in the Lord and committing your way unto Him. If I'm delighting myself in Him, I want to do whatever I can to please Him. If I'm really delighting myself in the Lord, I'm going to obey Him. That's what Jesus is saying right before He dies. If you love me, you'll... Keep my commandments. Not that hard. If I really love him, if I'm going to delight myself in him, then I'm going to commit my way. And I'm going to keep his commandments. So the first six verses of Psalm 37 read this way. Don't fret because of evildoers. Don't be envious of wrongdoers. In other words, don't be aggravated, irritated, upset, incensed, perplexed, jealous. Why? Because they'll wither like quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Have you 
thing that is, it's just apparent prosperity anyway. I'm going to trust the Lord who saved me to be able to bless me in whatever way he chooses to bless me, whenever he chooses to do it. Finally, verse 6, and he'll bring forth your righteousness as light and your judgment as the noon day. You know, most Christians live and breathe and minister in obscurity. Maybe our spouse, maybe our kids know what we do. Maybe our friends are aware that you know, we might support this ministry or that we are faithful attenders at church or that we volunteer, you know, whatever it may be, but it's a relatively small group of people. Most of us haven't been on the cover of People magazine, don't want to. But there's going to come a time when little old anonymous you is going to be placed out there, and the Lord himself is the one that's going to say, now, this is the real celebrity. Now, I know we're not doing it to this, but this is the Lord's response. You want to know who's the real celebrity on this planet? We probably don't even know their name. We probably have no idea who they even are. And the Lord's going to say, listen, this is who she is. You never knew her, but she was one of the most faithful servants that I ever had. And her righteousness will be just like the light. And poetically, it'll be like the light of noonday. Everybody's going to see. God's going to make all this right. And you don't suffer in vain, and you don't serve in vain. The Lord loves you. And you trust you. 